sorry, I'm repeating it because I wanted to say special thanks to everybody. Again. Does Don come in the evening? No. He comes in the morning. Right. I'll get it done. He comes in the morning? Yes. Oh. There are no announcements, No, nothing class business to take care of. Um, before we say our prayers, um, I hope you all got the message. I'm sorry again, sorry again, sorry again. Um, <laughs> in, in putting this whole thing together, I've been living a lot in my memory and trusting in how well I know these works because I've taught them for so long. There's so, there's so much a part of me, so much so much a part of me. I mean, these are living creatures for me. They're not characters in fictional works. Um, I, I keep living in memory, so when I um, look ahead to schedule things for us, I do it with that in mind, and I, I made that mistake with the, as you, are, as you know, with the Purgatorio, and then realized I had to go back because I, it was just a huge omission. Um, um, and coming to it later in life and older and, and in a new context because this was church related. And I began to think of it in catechetical terms which gave a whole new twist to what I was doing even though it was the same material. And, it, and insights were coming to me from different angles um, and I realized I had to go back. And I thought when we get to the Paradiso we would go through it pretty matter of factly because it's so intellectual and, and my sense is that um, um, all of you have been glad to do the Divine Comedy, but, but approaching that level of theological thinking would not be easy, and, you, and we don't have time to go into this in a lot of depth. So I thought, we'll just go straight through it, and I will cover really important points that, 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 that show how extraordinary Dante's representation of heaven is. Because it's exciting to see, you know, what's what we're hoping to enjoy one day. And Dante's the only one who's done it so masterfully. Anyway, I thought four weeks, and, but then last week it occurred to me after our class that I, I've got to make this transition because we're going into what may be the last part of our work together. I don't know if you, if you all want to go on and do Shakespeare and Melville, or I don't know what's going to happen with that. But, but I thought this is the end of the Middle Ages in any way, even you know, before the modern world, and it'll be the end of our work on the epic. And, and add to that that Beatrice is going to be Dante's guide, and that's a radical shift in what's been going on with us, and I did not want to shortchange her. I thought, I, I can't do this. I'm, I'm going to have to devote a whole class to, um, to one of those large waterboarding um, Overviews, um, because without it, I just I just don't think any of us can appreciate the Paradiso in the way that it should be. So, I'm going to touch on some things in the first eight cantos tonight, but only touch. I'm only going to mention them tonight. I'm going to give an overview. I'm going to try to pull lots of things together to help bring to a close or to some completion the work that we began with the Iliad and that we'll be tying up with the Paradiso and. So I want to put that into a perspective. When we first started, I remember saying to everybody, um, I would like everybody to try to read, um, but 
I didn't want anybody not coming if they didn't read because there's still something to, to learn. But I remember saying, because I believe it really, really deeply, if you read, you'll get far more out of it. It's like the, I gave the example of the Eucharist. If Protestants won't know that. If you participate in the Eucharist and you're taking Christ in you, that participation changes your life, or should. Same thing with literature. The more fully we enter into the life of these works, the more we get out of them. Um, so, um, um, and the other thing was that I remember saying one of the qualities that sets us off from the Protestant world and certainly a lot of the modern world is our belief in the importance of tradition. <clears throat> Church doesn't make much of it, but um, I think that's a, one of the um, symptoms of a problem for Catholics in the modern world. We, we don't carry that tradition forward. So before we leave Dante, and, um, in, and actually what in, in, in setting up for the last four meetings in the Paradiso, what I wanted to do was put all of that together. So tonight I'd, I'd like to, to give one of those overview meetings to try to do that because I, um, once we start the Paradiso, we won't look back. So this will be the last chance. So. Um, those of you who just came, I want to just remind you, no, I know. I, um, if you can be here at 6.45, I'm going I'm to make a point of starting at 6.45. Um, we've been starting late and putting out coffee late, and it, there's, you know, 10, 15 minutes where everybody's settling, and I'd like to try to take that away so that we start on time, because I really feel awkward about putting Alex um, in the spot that I, I have been doing. So I'm going to make a point of starting at 6.45 for, the, for these last four meetings. Um, so if you all could, um, if you all could make a point. I know sometimes work and other things come up and if, if you're late, you're late, it's okay. But if everybody could try to come, I'm going to try to make a point of starting on time um, regularly for these last meetings. Last thing, um, we've got cookies and stuff back there. Um, we've got four more meetings. And, and next week we will start on that regular schedule. One through eight, nine through seven, 16, 17 through 24 to the end, okay? If anybody would like to help out um, contributing with um, goodies, um, we, I would be glad to see anybody step forward to rotate it. We've only got four weeks left. If, if people want to trade off doing things, it would be nice to have your help with this. But if you'd like to do that, say something to Suzanne or me um, at the end. Okay, um, one last, uh, once again, for all of those, all of you who were at the gathering, it was a special, special gathering, and lots of people said that, I think, because um, the, it was good for the two groups to get to know, you know, to see who the other people were and, and talk with each other and meet each other, and um, I didn't overhear any conversations about the Iliad and the Odyssey, so something must be wrong, I don't know, but <laughs> anyway, it was a special, special um, day. I enjoyed it so much that um, I think we ought to think about having them every week or every other week. <laughs> you, you, guys you guys bring the food. You guys bring the food and we'll provide the house. <laughs> I'm going to hear it when I get home. I didn't check that out with Suzanne. You already know that. Yeah.
I can I can tell by looking over there. <laughs> okay. She had the she had the look. Okay. Um, anybody? I've been meaning to ask Andy. How is Amy doing? Same. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Sorry to hear that. Anybody who wants to add anybody to our prayer list tonight? Sorry, I don't even. Say again. My friend's mother died this morning. Her name? Donna. Donna? Okay. Thanks. I have a friend that was in a car wreck. She and her husband were traveling to their home in New York, and he was killed. Oh. And she has a broken back and broken ribs, and she's in the Carlisle. They brought her from West Virginia here. What's her name? Pat. Pat and the uh, husband's name? Rich. Pat and Rich. And? Donna, Donna. Help me, Doc, because I'm not holding on to names, as you all know. Let's start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let that cross be marked on us. Um, thank you, Lord, for the gift of this day, um, for the gift of your life in the Mass this morning. Um, for the, your life that we carry within us, for all the strength that we take from it, for all the help that we get to try to be like you, to bring you to our world. Thank you. Um, for this time together um, that we've had, what a great blessing, great, great blessing. Um, for sure for me and Suzanne um, to be able to do this. Um, I ask a blessing on everybody here um, particularly where there are burdens. All of us carry them. There's a story behind every one of us. Um, marriages, family, friends. Um, and we live in a wounded condition and you call us to you um, to sh most of all to take you to a world that doesn't know you. Strengthen all of us in our efforts to do that, particularly um, where you're not wanted um, and where um, there are grave, grave needs. Um, watch over uh, Carrie, Amy, <coughs> the Carltons, Sue in her recovery, Randy's daughter, um, hope the um, surgery goes well, Daniel to return, open his heart, help somebody bring him back. Um, um, for Donna, um, Receive her into your kingdom. Forgive her sins. Wash them away. Um, if she is to do a time in purgatory, um, let her time be speeded by our prayers. And um, receive, I'm sorry. Rich. 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 And the, the wife's name? Pat. Yeah. Receive Rich into your kingdom. Um, wash away his sins. Um, let um, Rich and Donna know the joy of being either in your presence or approaching you. Um, let them be glad. Um, um, and whatever loves they have for their family, let their family know it, even if they're separated by these two different times. And um, watch over Pat, Pat, in her recovery. Um, um, let your will be done in these things and help all of us to give ourselves um, to what you will. 
and find a peace in it. We ask all of these things in Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, okay, here goes. I don't know what's going to happen tonight. <laughs> we'll see what happens here. Just a quick review of last week. Last week we um, um, we dealt with that section when Dante and Virgil and Stasius <coughs> ascended to the earthly paradise and were greeted by Matilda. Remember, and I, I suggested that she's the natural God-given image of the siren. The siren is the, an image of the succubus, the, the, the danger that um, we create for ourselves by wanting the world too much. And appropriately, I think she's figured in the image of a woman because of woman's beauty. Because, and I, I know the modern world is all screwed up about that, but William, I mean, women, by, by God's design, have been given a beauty that's peculiar to them. Um, and um, they had to pass through it. When we see Matilda, once again, it's, it's an image of a woman, except in her case, she represents that unfallen condition where there are no temptations. Um, the, the men are freed of their sins. So when they look on her, they see that original innocence that was present in everything in nature. And the, if you've read it, I'm trusting you all have, you know how beautiful those lines are when, in those first cantos when they return to the earthly paradise. The, the, the leaves sing, the birds sing. You can hear a harmony in um, the wind. There's no variations in temperature or turbulence from storms. Um, it's, it's Eden as it once was before the fall. Um, let me just try to recover some of this because I want to I want to try to stay in the text as much as I can before we leave it. Um, on page three fifty two. Now eager to explore on every side the heavenly forest thick with living green, which made the bright new morning light more soft. Without delay I left the bank behind and slowly made my way across the plain, whose soil gave its own fragrance to the air. I know all of you had this experience when you wake up in the morning, on rare mornings. They're, they don't happen often, but sometimes we'll wake up in the morning and all you can say is, what an extraordinary day. There's a common beauty. Remember, um, I, I pointed this out when we did Homer. Rosy-fingered dawn, those epithets from Homer, that there's a pink cast to the morning sometime when the sun is just coming up. And it, it's so much, it reminds me of this, like, like um, a rose um, tint that colors everything. And when, when the mornings are balmy, it's almost like we have a hint that would take us back to paradise for a moment. Um, we, there's just a peace to those mornings. This is what Dante returns to, except it's the given condition. There's no alteration in it, no variations. My forehead felt the stirring of sweet air, whose flowing rhythm always stayed the same, and struck no harder than the gentlest breeze. 
and in the constant moving air each branch with trembling leaves was bending to one side towards where the holy mount first casts its shade. It did not curve so sharply towards the ground that little birds among the topmost leaves could not continue practicing their art. There's nothing interfering with the birds, nothing chasing, they're at home and they're singing. They welcome in full-throated joyful sound the days beginning to their leafy boughs whose sowing sound accompanied their song. The leaves add their own harmony, but sound we hear passed on from branch to branch in the pine forest on the shore of Kayasi when Aeolus sets free Sirocco's winds. By now, although my steps were slow, I found myself so deep within the ancient wood, I could not see the place where I came in. Those of you who were here for the Aeneid, I hope you remember that, because Dante certainly does, he's, he's got the Aeneid. That, that, that description of Virgil when Aeneas went to um, um, Palatium to talk with um, Evander, and he returned to that ancient wood. Remember where Saturn was hidden and there was that quiet reticent, what was the word, reticent? Um, no, no, what was, what's the word that means latent? Where the god was latent. You could feel it in the, um, in the forest. And there was those descriptions when, when Virgil set that primeval forest against the capital, what, what it became. So he set those two worlds against each other. So we knew what it once was like. Um, Dante has all that stuff in him. <clears throat> the clearest of all waters on earth would seem to have somehow a cloudy tinge compared to this flowing transparency. Transparent though it flows dark, very dark beneath an everlasting shade, which will never admit a ray of sun or moon. Um, he's full of wonder um, on page 354. The men um, are across the stream from her, but they walk together in the same direction. And then she says, Matilda, the bottom of 354, this place is new to each of you, she said. Um, Virgil has never seen this before. As much as he knows the natural world, he never saw this. Although she will, she will make a comment, the, the men will see, this was what all the ancient poets were struggling to try to capture. So we, in all the ancient poetry, we have this sense of a, of a golden age that was lost. And the poets were the ones who had some, this deep sensitivity, this sense of it, and were trying to capture it in words. Now, it's here. And when that phrase is mentioned, the women, both all the men look at each other because they, they know exactly what that means, and the women smile at it. Um, so there was this um, beauty in paradise, unlike anything they'd known before. Last time we met, I, I walked through those passages where um, Beatrice um, approaches. Just I want to look at this again, just very briefly. Page 358. Um, Matilda says, notice her words, my brother, look and listen. My brother, brother and sister, that special relationship that we know from our church. Who knows that in the world? I mean, to my knowledge, there's nobody outside the world who can use those phrases that way. When a man and woman live together outside of a sexual relationship and are together as brother and sister. That's us. I know, I know. 
I had you on my mind when I said that, even though I didn't. <laughs> my brother, look and listen, suddenly a burst of incandescent cut the air with one quick flash. It lit up all the woods. At first I thought it was a lightning flash. this burst of air, incandescent air. What can this be, I thought, and as I did, a gentle melody was drifting through the luminous atmosphere. The, the air is lighting up. What's approaching is this Beatrician pageant, yeah? Like a blazing light. What's leading it are the, are the lights of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then on 360, the procession is described in its parts. 360, and under that magnificence of heaven, came four and twenty elders, two by two, all of them wearing crowns of fleur-de-lis. They were singing, um, go down a few. Following them there came four creatures wearing crowns of forest green. Each had six wings <clears throat> with feathers that were all covered with eyes, as if they, their vision was multiplied greatly. Covered with eyes, were Argus still alive, his eyes would be exactly like all those. Reader, I cannot spend more verses now describing them, for I have other needs. He describes the griffin um, on page 361 at the bottom. There were three ladies circling the dance near the right wheel, and one was red, so red, she, could, she hardly would be visible in fire. Second looked as if her flesh and bones were fashioned out of emerald. The third had all the whiteness of new fallen snow. Faith, hope, and charity. The three virtues with the appropriate colors. Red, emerald, and um, white. white. Um, going over the top of 362. Besides the left wheel dancing festively were four more ladies dressed like purple, in purple robes and led by one with three eyes in her head. Clearly that's prudence, wisdom. Because always in literature, you, you, you know, there's that image of that third eye in the forehead symbolizing the spiritual vision that some special people have. Behind the dancing figures three and four, there came two aged men differently dressed, but similar in bearings that um, stayed and grave. One wore the garments of a follower of great Hippocrates. That's Luke, the doctor, the writer of Acts. Um, the other seemed to be his counterpart. He bore a sword so sharp, gleaming so bright, that I, though on the other bank, felt fear. That's Paul, the severity, the gravity of, of bringing that Jewish temper to the beginnings of Christianity to make clear exactly what was going on. Then I saw coming four of the four of humble mien, and last of all, an old man by himself who moved in his own dream, his face inspired. Peter, Paul, and James, those are the writers of the um, minor epistles. So the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, now why, what's Dante doing? And you know what happens next. Um, Beatrice and Dante, I don't want to go through this because we've covered it, but she confronts him and shames him to such an extent that he, you know, he's going to pass out on, on, um, on where was it, sorry, um, on page 373 is that moment when Beatrice goes to the griffin, who is the image of Christ in his dual nature. 
she looks into the griffin's eyes and Dante looks into her and there's that that description that I read last time and while my soul delighted and amazed was tasting of that food which satisfied and at the same time makes one hungrier. Um, on 374, the women turn to Beatrice and ask her to smile so that she can unveil herself. And for the first time she smiles, but it's the radiance of her coming from God now, not the woman she was on earth when Dante knew her. And the, the effect of that smile is so overwhelming that Dante almost loses his sense. 375, I was bereft of every other sense. Now let me stop this for a second. Um, what's going on here? Um, <clears throat> some people see this Beatrician procession as an image of the Mass and an allegory of the Bible and its importance in bringing Christ to people and here to Dante. And I think there's, there's that to it, but I think there's also something else. It can't be just an allegorical treatment of, of the writers of Scripture. The, the 24 elders of the Old Testament and the Gospel writers and the Epistle writers and um, Luke and the Acts. It's got to be the works themselves because several of the writers are duplicated. Luke's going to be included in the Gospels and he's going to be the writer of Acts and um, John has that position too. I think what Dante is showing is that there's, I think there's an allegorical element to this, that this represents the the church. Um, um, but I, think, I also think it represents this. It's Dante making clear to us not only that the men brought Christ to the world in, revela in these forms of revelation, um, but as things, as things, they were Christ-bearing images themselves. I've been arguing from the beginning of this course that Christ is everywhere present in creation if we could only see him. And Dante has to be doing something like that given his way of looking at the world. He, he knows that God is everywhere, not just in people. He's in things. The, the, the books of Revelation are living expressions of God. So what Dante's showing us is, a, the, I think, the procession of the mass that Beatrice is leading the, leading the car with the griffin, or the griffin is taking it, to reveal Christ to Dante. Um, and I think there's some sense in which we're meant to feel that, that all of this is to prepare Dante for what's about to take place, that he's going to go into the heavens. I think it's also a way of just holding before him what's been true all of his life. Because he, he would have been going to Mass all of his life, right? Um, T time and space are different right now. Time and space are different right now. This is not time as we ordinarily know it. The entire prophetic history of the Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition is present before him at once, living. So it's a, it's a reminder that the fullness was always there even if he experienced it day by day by day by day or Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. It's another way of saying that the wholeness of God is always in front of us if we would see it. I think that's one. The other is, um, as I said last time, that <laughs> even though Dante's gone through his purgation, he's going to have to have a reckoning with Beatrice.
and I spoke to that. Yeah, you were all. Is everybody here? That um, Karen, come up. Come on up here. You can't have all that food to yourself. <laughs> What a pretty dress. Um, that every, it's Dante's way of showing us, this is just a review of what we did last week. Dante's way of showing us that even though all of us, before we can get to God, we have to make ourselves ready to be worthy. So we, we have to repent our sins, we have to do away with them, whatever of lust or gluttony or avarice or wrath or envy or pride, whatever sin, we're going to have to take them on. That's what purgatory is. And as you know, I, I think that's what we're supposed to be doing every day of our lives anyway. Um, but in addition to that, every one of us is going to have a reckoning with that special Christ bearer <coughs> whom we betrayed in some special way, whoever that was. You already know it, what happens because we went over this. Um, Beatrice reminds him of what happened when she died Remember that she said he should have loved her more. Um, and instead of loving her more, when she left the flesh, he turned to fleshly things. Whatever that's to mean, the world and all of its whatever he did. Yeah, this is on page 368 at the bottom. So, um, and just in it, this is personal on my, on, for me. It's always been interesting to me that in this personal reckoning, it was, beyond, it was uh, Beatrice, because Beatrice is the one who first awakened in Dante the sense of the Trinity in creation, in human beings. That he, just, he had this distinct experience of the Trinity in her. There was this glowing, radiant beauty um, that made clear to him the presence of God in her life, and not God singular, the Jewish or Islamic way, for a Catholic, Trinitarian, Christian way. It's not his wife he's dealing with here. It's Beatrice. Um, I don't know what it will be for most of it. My, my own sense, this is personal to me, but I may be wrong here, that most of us will have a reckoning with our spouses. You know, for, for, for all of the, all of the, whatever you, failures, betrayals, the little things that add up in our lifetime, in our, you know, in our families or marriages that we, we won't have something to answer for. But in, Be in here, it, it seems to me it goes beyond that because in Beatrice, it wasn't the romantic love that led to a marriage. It was the, this divine love that awakened his faith and this great passion for beauty and for God and everything else. So um, we, we talked about um, Beatrice's severity. I'm just going to repeat some. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this quickly because we have to get on. But um, she is merciless. Page 366. <clears throat> um, I sensed the regal sternness of her face as she continued in the tone of one who says the sharpest words until the end. <coughs> Remember, <laughs> this is God. <clears throat> the feminist critics go nuts with this. So do most men. Um, as soon as he sees her, there's this description of the old lust, remember, the, the old net. He turns, the first thing, this is the top of 368, the first thing to do is to turn for Virgil. He wants to go back to those things that he knows, that are, that are comforting. Whenever we're in danger, the first thing we want to do is go back to what's familiar, um, where we can hide. There's no hiding here. 
Dante, though Virgil leaves you, do not weep, do not, that is, for you shall have to weep from another wound, do not weep yet. Just as an admiral from bow to stern, this is a description of Beatrice, so... <laughs> um, however you guys read this, it seems to me what we're meant to do here is to see this is that voice from God, this is a Christ bearer, that there's something severe because our even if, even if the sins have been atoned, and they have been, there's a, some, remember the, I said this last time, at the bottom of hell, there was um, fraud simple and fraud complex. Those are the last two um, divisions. The last one was fraud complex because it involves special betrayals. Um, as we've seen everywhere in the Inferno and the Purgatorio, as we're going to see everywhere in the Paradiso, everywhere in the Paradiso, every, every canto, Christ is going to be present, even if he's not seen. He has been everywhere. The amazing thing about the Paradiso is it's going to, go, it's going to show God is present in everything created. There is nothing that doesn't show him. That is not the way we look at things today, but that's the way it is there. So to not live aware that he is involved in everything going around is a blindness in our part. So she is really severe with him. Um, bottom of 366, yes, look at me, yes, I'm Beatrice. So you at last have deigned, you have at last deigned to climb. So you've condescended to come to us, have you? Um, she's just not going to let up. He passes out. Um, he gets taken through on page 372. The recognition of my guilt so stunned my heart, I fainted. What happened then is known only to her who was the cause of it. He gets dipped in the river of Lethe. All of his sins are washed away. When he comes out, he can't even recall them anymore. The women have fun with that. And then we get this second mask. Um, the whole procession leaves, leaving Beatrice and Dante alone, and Stasius, in his own, his own experience of it in some way. And what we, what we're, what's described is this uh, mask involving a tree and the tree has puzzled lots of critics. What happens is that the, the, the crossbar to the, to, the, um, to the car, the chariot, is linked to the tree, which was barren and dead. And as soon as it's linked, it begins to flower, to come to life again. And then immediately, it's attacked on page 379. As moved the bird of, of love who then swooped down and through the tree, tearing off newborn leaves, rending the bark, destroying all the blooms. Into the cradle of the glorious car, I saw a fox leap. Um, and the fox is described as being empty, that um, the food it fed on had no nourishment on 380. And then I saw the ground between the wheels opening up, a dragon issued forth, driving its tail up through the chariot. Let me just offer a couple of thoughts. What's the point? Well, let me, I'll, I'm going to try to get to that, Marcy, in yeah. just a second. It's where I'm going. Um, I th people interpret the tree differently. Some people see it as um, the church or the civic order or law. Um, I, I, I think it's, 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 it more fully represents what's going on in the mask if we see it as the as um, the, the tree of good and evil, but also an image of all of nature, all of nature. Because if we don't see it that way, I think we miss something. When the fall occurs, 
All things in nature come under the fall. Everything in nature feels the effects of the fall. Trees die now. They don't produce apples, or apples will die. There's nothing in nature that doesn't enter into a mortality, a death. It's only when that tree is connected to the image of the cross and the griffin that it springs to life again. So I, I, I think we can look at it as law, as a civil institution. I think it's closer to look at it as the church or even all, all of life. <clears throat> when it's attacked, it seems to me the, the images get a little bit clearer. What Dante is showing us is the, the bird is the, is the, is the image of um, Roman justice. When Constantine um, made Christianity tolerant and linked the church with the state. And you've all read those things I've given you, so you know what happened. Because what happens then is that this incestuous relationship develops between the church and the state. And it takes from the, the fifth century to Dante's time, that long, for the church to extricate itself. That's, that's why Florence, I've said this again and again, that's why Florence is such an important moment because it's the first example of a modern republic that's completely independent of the, of the empire and the church. That's why Dante fought so adamantly. And, and, and by the way, all of his arguments in favor of that independence are from St. Thomas, who's, who's following Aristotle. So in the second mask, I think what Dante, what Dante is showing is that, um, <clears throat> is that before he and Beatrice can ascend into the heavens, what, what happens to Dante here is what I was suggesting happened to Dante and us when he and Virgil and Stasius ascended to the, um, to the um, earthly paradise. That Stasius is an image of the fullness of our humanity um, brought to its maturity in faith. Before Dante can go on, he has to carry everything of his faith with him. So what, he, what he's going to carry with him now into the heavens is that humanism that I've talked about, this whole rich past that the pagans knew so well and Christians don't, that rich humanist tradition, in addition to all the things in the world that have been Christ-bearing and that have suffered, that are present in the Beatitian pageant and that are being played out in that mask. All, all the things that have happened to the church. So the, he cannot go up there if he doesn't carry that with him because that's who we are. That's our faith. So it's highly allegorical. It's, it's very much like the mass. It's exactly what, I mean, it's, I mean it's, it has the ritualistic sense of the, of the mass, the Eucharist, as we participate in it, you know, when you go to mass. Um, um, so I, it's, it's not just a an artificial um, display of, of um, you know, the, the, the sort of things that we think about in a Renaissance mask or a medieval mask. It's, it's meant to recall all that he has to carry with him before he can finish this leg of his journey in the heavens. 386. <clears throat> um, it is this is just the moment before he and Beatrice will ascend into the heavens. 
Um, Beatrice turns to Matilda and says, ask Matilda to explain, and then the lovely lady spoke as though she felt she had to free herself from blame. This is Matilda. Beatrice is speaking to Matilda, and there's something in her tone that makes even Matilda feel as if she's got some guilt to deal with. So the, the, and if you remember from your reading of this, when she goes into the forest and Dante's got these questions on his mind and he won't ask them, she's scolding him. There's, there's nothing that she says that's nice. So um, we've either got a shrew or Dante's suggesting that too often in our faith we want to make Christ comfortable to us and that there's something severe that we will always experience as severe so long as we're in this life because we're separated from that, that holiness. The martyrs know it, the saints know it. Um, so here at the very end, even Matilda, I've already made this clear to him, this and much more in Leith, I'm sure, could not have been washed away, could not have washed away the memory. Then Beatrice, a more important thing perhaps, weighs on his mind, depriving him of memory and clouding his mind's eye. The two women are having fun. But here before us is the stream you know me. Now lead him there, and as you want, revive his weakened powers in his flow. She will wash him in the you know me, which will revive all of his memories of his good deeds. So his memories of his bad deeds were washed away. He can't even recall his sins. When he, when he returns to Beatrice, he's not ashamed any longer. He doesn't carry that. And now his memory of good deeds. So imagine the, this is the beginning of a blessedness that's only going to increase as we move up, the, up, up into the heavens. The lovely lady took me by the hand and said to Stasius, as she moved ahead and, <coughs> with queenly modesty, and you come too. Reader, if I'd had space to write more words, I'd sing at least in part of that sweet draught which never could have satisfied my thirst. There it is again. Remember, I, I don't know if all of you were here last week, but when he looked at the griffin, that to me is one of the most extraordinary passages in all of literature. Because remember, he looks, Beatrice is looking into the griffin's eye, Dante's looking into her eyes, and what he sees is um, the changing nature of an unchanging figure. It's Christ in his dual nature. It satisfies him completely, completely, the thirst he has is quenched and it sets him on wanting more. Don't forget that because he's saying it here. Um, I'd sing at least in part that sweet drought which never could have satisfied my thirst. Remember when he looks into the griffin, he describes it, just to repeat this one last time on page 373, and while my soul, delighted and amazed, was tasting of that food, was satisfied, and at the same time makes one hungrier. And I said last week, remember, most of us have this, most people have this sense of heaven as being static. It's a static condition. You get there and what's there to say? It's dull. I mean, who would want to, who wouldn't rather read a Jane Austen novel than contemplate heaven? Because in Jane Austen novels, something happens. In heaven, nothing happens. It's a dull, boring place. I think that's, I mean, we hear that so often from the, you know, from the world or even from ourselves maybe. What Dante makes clear is whatever, whatever desire we have will be absolutely satisfied and set on for more infinitely. Imagine that. 
explain, wrap your head around that dynamic. I can't even begin. I mean, imagine the people you'd want to, I, I, I hope, I mean, I hope to get to heaven to see Christ. But if I get there, I can't imagine not talking with Shakespeare or Melville <laughs> or Dante. And I can't imagine you guys not wanting to talk with Dante either. Did Dr. Alexander really have this right in this? Or was he just in his head making this stuff up? I'm going to talk to St. Thomas because I paid money for him. That's, I'm going to tell him if I see him, I warned you. Get ready. Reader, if I had space to write more words, I'd sing at least in part of that sweet drop which never could have satisfied my thirst. But now I have completed every page planned for my poem, Second Canticle. I'm checked by the bridle of my art. He has to keep focused. He has to keep on, mind, his, on his mind and what he's doing. Remember in Plato, what's our first business? To mind our own business, to be taking care of the things that we should be doing in whatever it is we're doing to make ourselves good. From those holiest waters, I return to her reborn, a tree renewed in bloom with newborn foliage, immaculate, eager to rise now, ready for the stars. So we've completed, isn't that amazing? We've completed the inferno now, and we've completed purgatorio. <sighs> Let me breathe for a minute, because that's too much. Um, okay, um, congratulations. Um, um, okay. Now I'm gonna stop. Just I want to I want to give this overview to help prepare for the Paradiso to try to set the whole thing or or some of the major aspects of it in a context to hopefully to make it richer for all when you go through it. Before we leave the purgatory, any any simple questions? <laughs> uh, I'll let you I'll let you off. I'll let you off. Yes. Does anybody have any? Anybody have any questions? It's been a good word. No, isn't it purgatorial? I mean, to, there's so much we can learn about what we can do with our own sins, you know, and sort of be glad with, to have this help. I hope. I hope. Okay. Okay. Let's. Okay. Let's do this. Okay, how to do this. From the beginning I have um, pressed this point that one of the things that distinguishes us in our faith from the rest of Christendom is um, the importance we give holes and traditions that it's um, it's much it should be much easier for a Protestant to pick and choose passages in a Bible. We are asked not to do that. We're asked to, to read the whole Bible. That's why they cycle it through so that over the course of our lifetime we're getting all of Scripture. Sad thing is that the Protestant reads the Bible a lot. So that in some ways, I think they know the Bible better than we do. That's a sad, and that's an indictment of us. I think in some ways, but. Um, I've been saying that it's really important for us to see, to read holes. <clears throat> and one of the things that poetry gives us is holes. That if we just take a part out of a poem, if we take one section out of the Iliad and, and don't see that section in light of the whole, we will misread it. 
when Dante gets to the upper levels of purgatory, he says he came to cure his blindness. That all of us carry a blindness with us, that we think we have answers for things and, and, and so often we show how arrogant we are because we don't. That there's so much more to see. <clears throat> so one of the things that I've been trying to stress from the beginning is that it's important to see these works in the light of the whole tradition. When we did the Iliad and the Odyssey, you saw that we could not read the Odyssey and understand it well if we had not read the Iliad because the Iliad was everywhere in it. It was suffering from the effects of the war. People had died. They were, um, when, remember when we began the Odyssey together? Telemachus went out in search of his father. He went to Pylos and Sparta where Nestor and his wife were and Menelaus and Helen and there were disorders in their homes because they were carrying the wounds of the war with them. So all of the families that we see in the beginning of the, of the Odyssey are in disorder. They're carrying the past with them. One of the things that the Odyssey is dealing with is how do you, how do you, I don't, not how to escape the past, but how to deal with it in a way that doesn't arrest you in it. Yeah? Odysseus had to go on these wanderings and, just, and learn about all these things, particularly about women. If he was going to get home and have a better home. So all of these homes in the beginning of the Odyssey were setups for Ithaca. When he would finally come home and he and Penelope would, would be re reunited. And remember, at the end of the Odyssey, after Odysseus kills all those suitors and the, and the maidservants for all their betrayals, he and Penelope are in bed sure having sex, and telling stories. And during that time, Homer describes Athena coming and stopping time. And I offer this reading that that was one of the things that the epic was doing, that what it was doing was bringing people out of the disorders of the past into a new, a new founding. In the Odyssey, it was a, a marriage. In the Iliad, it was this honor code involving men. So that what the epics were doing was dealing with this disorder and trying to bring, it was an epic struggle to come out of it for a refounding. And the refounding was never in physical terms. It was a new order of soul. And in that way, I remember I, I gave you the, the, that sheet of paper with the two prophetic traditions, the biblical and the literary. I was suggesting in, in amazing ways it lines up with the biblical tradition because in the biblical tradition everybody kept expecting this real physical political founding and even the disciples at the end were expecting it and Christ said my kingdom is not of this world. If a real founding took place I suggested it was between Homer and the story and readers who read it well whose own souls would be changed by what they read. That's an inward spiritual change, a refounding there. This is repeating, right? I mean, you all, you've heard me say this before, yes? Okay. So, one of the things the epic has set out to do from the very beginning is, is deal with the disorder of a people. The Greeks, the Romans, the Italians, the Americans. Because I'm reading Dante in the context of our world. That the epic poets are revealing the disorders that are peculiar to a people so that they can learn to see themselves as they are, to show how the gods are involved in their lives and trying to bring them out of that disorder. So every epic was about a, 
a refounding, a new order. And the, 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 the epic cost of it, how hard it was to do. Um, so I've been saying it's crucial from the beginning to read um, things in terms of a whole. Um, I'm, I've got the scheme on the back, I'll turn to it in a second. When we go forward, remember um, each of the canticles, each of the orders, each of the worlds has had a mode peculiar to it. In hell the mode was irony. Remember? Virgil and Dante are walking through with a sense of irony because they can see things the sinners can't. All of the sinners are blind. They've lost the good of the intellect. They can't see themselves very well. Yeah? So it's ironic. We're just, we feel ironies all the time. When we enter the purgatorio, the mountain, it's that first burst of hope. We're no longer in a condition where people are arrested in their sins. People are changing. They've accepted punishment, they've accepted guilt for their sins, and they want to change. So they're doing penance, they're accepting punishments, they're suffering gladly, singing, praying. And the mode of life in the purgatorio was wonder. Every canto, every level, had some experience of wonder. How could it not be? If your life is changing, you're beginning to see things, you're not caught in this dark way of seeing things all the time. And remember that, that the, the contrapassos showed how difficult that, that was because at every level the souls were undergoing these grotesque disciplines. Eyes wired shut, they had to learn to see. So at the level of envy, for, for example, you couldn't just get um, negative and make the world look dark um, because you didn't like it. You had to learn to see the good there. To do that, their eyes had to be wired shut so they could learn to see an inner vision. So that they were undergoing these disciplines to create this inner eye, this inner sight. Remember Dante at the top, to cure my, to cure my vision. They're trying to learn to see better um, and grow in love. That was the whole action of the Purgatorio. So every level had its wonder. When Dante and Beatrice ascend the heavens, They've entered a condition in which there is no sin any longer, no penance is needed. Now the mode is forgiveness, blessedness. Every soul they meet will be in a state of perfect beatitude, blessedness, joy. At every level they're going to encounter a different level, of a different degree of blessedness, but they're all blessed. They're all in a state of forgiveness. It's joy and gladness. So the mode now has changed. So now at every, at every level, Dante will be encountering wonders, but now they're going to be of a supernatural sort. The wonders are no longer in the natural order. They are extraordinarily splendid because they belong to the divine order. So this is going to be like a light show. Hold, hold on to your seats. Be tough in your minds because it's not going to be easy. If all of you have begun, you know it's not easy reason, I think. And all of them, all of them are at peace. All of them are at peace. There's no turbulence. There's no striving. They are at one with God. Um, Picardo will make that clear. In his will is our peace. He says that to Dante. Um... 
Why Beatrice? Here, I'm going to come back to that because I've got to turn. The, the themes of the opening cantos, let me just tell you, um, I can't go into this tonight because we don't have time, um, but the great themes, when, when Dante and Beatrice set off for the heavens, <laughs> they are transhumanized, <laughs> whatever that means. They are transhumanized, they're transfigured, and that the metaphors that Dante used will be really great. He and Beatrice are, he has a body, yeah? They're gonna enter the moon, and Dante's gonna ask this question, how can a body enter a body? You know in this earth, bodies can't enter, they can't. I hope everybody's really clear on that. We can't occupy the same space. Um, in our world, if somebody gets close to you, somebody goes, don't touch me. We're, we're, we're so private in our, in our sense of our own space. Don't want anybody to intrude in our space. Dante is going to enter the moon. And he's going to start raising these asking these questions about how can this be and what's happening. So the wonders aren't going to stop. So in the first problem he faces seems scientific in nature. Um, it's going to deal with the moon spots because they're entering the moon. And Dante's going to have these questions about these moon spots and what's going on because he, in his mind he's entering matter. Beatrice is going to give him an answer that I think is remarkable. It, it is, once again, we've seen this in all the epics. All the epics do this. He's giving us the most up-to-date argument on a matter of scientific inquiry. And he will explain that the people who believe that the moon spots are explained by their rarity or density are mistaken. And he gives a reason why. Now that may seem, wait, 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 hold, hold on. And the next um, planet he will in, encounter Picard and Constance and will talk with them about their having incompletely lived up to their vows in religious orders. They were all committed to, to the religious life and and ended up breaking their vows. They're in heaven. <clears throat> but they talked to him about that fact, what, what it means for us to break our promises. In the next heaven, he will, he will see the eagle of justice, give a quick outline again of God's justice in the world. And in cantos, I think canto seven, more than probably any other canto, six and seven, eight, but seven for sure, is one of the most important cantos of the entire Divine Comedy. Dante's, um, Dante's going to hear this quote about the, the temple of Jerusalem being destroyed and how that was an act of justice against the Jews. And Dante wants to know how a just act can be justly punished. Um, Beatrice's answer to that, to me, was one of the most revealing truths about the crucifixion that I've ever read. And then what follows that is um, this account of divine providence in Canto 7 where we get this explanation of why God had to take on our sins. So in the opening cantos, Dante's going to touch on what seems like a great variety of things. Moon spots, vows, justice. Those are the dominant themes in those opening cantos. And let me just say this without going into it because it's going to take some time. What connects them together is Christ. So let me throw this out to you guys. When, when we began this thing, I think the underlying 
thing in the monitor, you know, literature's prophecy, to see if we, I don't know, to see if we can find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him or something like that, or whatever that phrase was that I wrote. Um, I'm going to, here, I want to leave you guys with a challenge. It's you, what you wrote. No, thanks, Maurice. <laughs> it's just to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. I don't want to, but, um, thanks. Um, here's my challenge to you guys. Take those three topics, because those are the focus topics of those opening cantos, and see if you can find Christ in them. How's that? For, I'm going to give you guys all a test next week. <laughs> if he comes in, anyone going to be here? I don't <laughs> okay, we're going to see who's really tough next week. We're having a... No, I'm kidding. I'm just, but I'd like to throw that challenge at you guys. See if you can read those cantos and see what the connection is. The, the, the Paradiso opens, this, this is a key. I shouldn't be helping you guys. I should, leave, I should leave you on your own. Sink or swim. When our, fifth, when our fourth son was born, I took John. We, we were at a college where there was a swimming pool and during summers we would go to the lake and I would toss my sons in to get them learning how to swim. Suzanne would look at me with horror. And, <laughs> Um, Thomas had a real, Thomas was our first son and had a real hard time. He was very frightened of the water and we had to get close to the edge and, you know, to make it easier for him. I could take Jonathan out into the deep and just drop him and he would come up <laughs> laughing. It just was the way he was. Um, I'm throwing you guys in on this one. You ready? Here. Here's the opening. The glory of the one who moves all things penetrates all the universe reflecting in one part more and another less. He will say that again and again. <clears throat> in one form or another, he will keep saying, God is everywhere present in one form or another. And let me just leave it that way until we meet. But I'd like to just challenge you a little bit here. Take a look at those, those different themes and see if you can put the connection together, how they're connected in Christ. Because if you can do that, you're fulfilling what we set out to do as a, as a group. The argument was, if, if in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, or, you know, and, word was out, and then all things were made in the beginning. How does the opening of John go? The Word. Huh? Say it. Tracy, say it. I think it said in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was something. Yeah. And, He's the means of creation. Do you have a candy? Can you read it? This is Ignatius. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, there. and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, just stop. Everybody hold, read it again, please, and hold on to it, everybody. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If that's true, and we, our, our belief is it's revelation, it's from God, if it's true, it means there's nothing in creation that doesn't show Christ. 
Is that clear? I mean, that should be obvious, yeah? There's nothing in creation that doesn't reveal Christ. We live in a scientific world that has distanced us from it so that we look at things in terms of quantity, mathematical abstractions, not in terms of a person present or a creator. The opening lines I just read to you. So read those opening lines again. But then take what John said to those opening, one through eight, those opening cantos, and ask yourself, um, what Dante's doing? Are they connected by Christ? And if they are, how? Where is Christ? Because he's, he's not showing us... By the way, as we get up higher in, per, in Paradiso, we're going to get glimpses of Christ the person. Dante will get glimpses of him. And then suddenly faces will start appearing the closer he gets to God. But here we're not giving persons. We're being told... God is present in everything in creation. And we know from John that in the beginning was the Word and the, nothing was made that was not made without Him. That means we should be able to find Him everywhere. <clears throat> Even in a scientific account of something. So, there's my challenge. Don't be surprised if you get a test. <laughs> I, I'm trying to scare you all, but <laughs> I think you know me by now. So, Okay. Um, so, um, those are the opening themes of the, of the Paradiso. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. Wait, one more thing. Here we are. If this is the scheme of the Paradiso. Um, this scheme is... Um, a representation, a, just a brief, sketchy representation of the Ptolemaic scheme of the universe. You all know it, yeah? According to that scheme, going back to Ptolemy, the Earth was at the center of the universe with all of the planets revolving around it. And part of the evidence for that vision of things was because we saw the sun rising and setting. Um, and if you're saving the appearances, that was the term Aristotle and others of the ancient world used, if you're saving the appearances, you're trying to account for that. So we still use that language, right? That Ptolemaic language. Sun rises, it sets. Even though we know it doesn't, right? It's not right, it's not going around us. But, but it appears that way in the rotations, okay? So we still use that, the, the saving of the appearances. We try to account for the way things appear, and we give a reason for them. Right? So this was the Ptolemaic scheme with the planets revolving around the Earth. And I want to just, I want to interject something here because it, I, I hope it will make more sense of what, of where we are and what's going to happen almost immediately. Um, it's already brewing in the Renaissance with Copernicus. The, the, the things are in motion. The seeds are planted. Aristotle's been recovered. Plato will have no place in the scientific scheme of things because, because of his view of material causes. He looks down on material causes. Aristotle doesn't. Aristotle's recovered, and a, and a scientific way of looking at things is recovered. So the seeds are being prepared for Copernicus, who's just a little ways off, who will suddenly throw all of this over and make it clear to us that the sun's in the center of the universe with the planets revolving around it. That's the Copernican view, and that's the beginning of the Renaissance with Shakespeare and everybody that follows afterwards. 
Now here's something really important to think about. This is just amazing. I just I want you guys to get some sense of this because it'll make a difference in your reading. Think about this. According to the Ptolemaic view, or let's call it the Homeric and Virgilian view, view everything. Um, did I leave the moon out? What are they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excuse me. God. Um, everything from the moon down. Yeah, it should. Everything from the moon down, according to the pre-scientific, the say Ptolemaic view, um, was a, a world of change. What the Renaissance people call a root of ch- a world of change. Mutability. Things were constantly in flux and they were subject to death. Yeah? Things come into being, they grow, they die. Now, think about this. This is, uh, this is an amazing thing to me. Um, they understood because they lived on an earth in which trees grew up. They flourish, they produce fruit, they die. Human beings came into existence, they passed. One of the great questions for the philosophers, how did things come into being? How can something come into being that didn't exist before? One of the great questions of the philosophers, the pre-Socratics all had to wrestle with that. And they came up with this notion of being. I don't want to get there, but they all wrestled with this question. And the belief was that everything from the moon down was this world of shadowy, flux, change, mutability, death. And everything in the heavens was immutable. Unchangeable. Yeah? Permanent. Think about this. This is amazing. How do they account for it? Those are the realms of the gods who are eternal. They belong to an unchanging world. So even in the early imagination, the Greeks and the Romans are trying to give an account for the appearances of things that squares with their experiences. You all following? Is that clear? Is that clear? Okay. When, now think about this. Now according to that, according to any scientific view, that means man can't know himself. He's constantly changing. There's nothing permanent about him. He can't be known. So the only way to know him is, truly, is through the poets. And, and you see what we've learned from the poets. I mean, those of you who have been here from the... And the poets have a lot to teach us, I think. When Copernicus comes into the world and he says, the sun, watch what happens. Here's the sun, and the planets are around, and the earth now takes its place among the planets. What happens to our conception of man? Because now that he's a part of this revolving, constant world, a part of the constancies of nature, he can be known. So two things happen in the Renaissance. The whole Ptolemaic view gets thrown over. It's a time of tremendous upheaval. There's metaphysical questioning. That's the Renaissance. It's a time of questioning the metaphysics of everything. And it leaves everybody in this profound doubt. It's one of Shakespeare's great things. But the other side of that is now man can be known. So it happens from the Renaissance forward is the development of the sciences until we get to today. 
that clear? Yeah. Let me stop for a second because I'm going through this really fast. Is that? It's a sort of remarkable thing to look at these worldviews and how they develop and um, the different ways we have of trying to arrive at explanations for you know, our, our human experiences. And Candy, do you have something? No. No? We're still trying. It's a process. We're still trying to understand. Yeah. The problem with the modern world is I think science, science has got the final answer. When if you look at sciences, sciences are always you know, they're, they're residual. They're always leaving things behind. They're always changing. It's, the science is never in a final state. Well, that's why geology, though, is such a dynamic science. And why it basically, Should be. it leads, well, it, for most people it is. Yeah. It leads it's you into basically, one of the reasons I went there was to answer some of these questions. And quite frankly, you realize why things are the way they are and, and how they got that way and what the influence is and there are attempts at explaining things that can't be explained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so is everybody clear? The subject of the epics in an interesting way, if we look at it quasi-scientifically, if I can use that, is that everything from the moon down is a realm of shade, Plato's cave where things are in flux and changing. It's only by entering a world of unchanging things that we can begin to know ultimate explanations of things. So the early poets in their poetry are in some sense attempting to account, to explain our human condition right from the beginning. Um, at Dante's time, he's still under a Ptolemaic scheme. He and, and, and Beatrice now are going to leave the earth enter into the heavens to the moon. This is the sublunar, that is, this is a world of change and flux. And from there, they're going to enter the heaven of unchanging divine realities. And what's gonna happen then is Beatrice is gonna be able to present to him things Virgil never could. So reason is still very much to the forefront. But, but Beatrice is gonna be able to bring things to his reason that now have a divine origin, something Virgil could never have brought to him. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. So we, we are entering into a completely different phase, a, 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 a different mode, a different state of being beyond the world that we know it in some ways, even though we're still in the heavens. We're in the natural order as we know it. Supernatural things are going to be revealed to Dante. Okay. Now why, okay, why Beatrice, why Beatrice? But let me, I want to go back for a moment. But this, I want this question hanging over everybody. Why Beatrice? <clears throat> Couple of things. We're reading an epic. We're about ready to leave the epic world. When we finish the Divine Comedy, the epics will be behind us. I'm going to be sad to leave them with you guys. The epics behind us. What is an epos, the epic? We've talked about this from the beginning. An ep epic, epos, means a word. A word. I suggested at the upper reaches of Purgatorio what Dante was doing all, with all of those poets because what he was doing was bringing a word. But it's a word, it has its roots in epos, 
but it has a very different meaning now in the Logos, the God who is the Word. Okay, I looked up Logos and spent a long time on that. I want your definition and I want you to use it in a sentence. <laughs> what else do you want? What else do you want? I started it yesterday and I don't know how to explain it. And I don't know exactly. I'm going to have a guard at the gate and, and, and do, do something to search you and Bob before the two of you come in this. What? Here, let me, let me, let me try. The Logos and use it in a sentence. Okay, the Logos. The, the Logos, as the Greeks understood it before Christianity gets a hold of it, is that yeah. there's this rationality to everything in nature. Everything is intelligible. Everything is. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, Marcy, but let me try to answer it briefly. There's a rationality, a reason, an intelligibility to everything. There's light. There's a meaning. Okay. So that you could look at a leaf or a flower, um, a tree, a human being, anything, and there's a meaning in all of it. So there's an affinity in all things. They share this intelligibility. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have a science. Um, so all things in nature um, partake of this intelligibility. The pre-Socratics and the Socratics come to a point where they, they name it being. There's this being to things. All things participate in being, this fullness of life. The Greeks couldn't go farther than that. Plato, Plato went so far as to call it the good, the, the form of all things that's full of intelligibility and all things participate in it, that's his word. When we come to Christianity, they adopt it because they see that the, the pre-Christian world, the, the, the pre-Christian philosophic world and the poetic world, both saw that um, there was this intelligibility to all things in nature. Um, and when, when Christ enters the world and then the theologians follow and begin to think about this stuff, they realize that, that this Logos was Christ, God, the Trinity, um, so that, and, and to go back to where we were just were a minute ago, that if he was this, the means of creation, the, the Logos itself, he is the Logos, the Word, that all things partake, partake of him. We can find something of him in everything in creation if we looked the right way. So that's about as rough, I mean, that's as general. Wait, 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 and, let me, and I'll, I'll put it in a sentence. So, um, the, the ancient Greeks and Romans came to a point of understanding that, that to explain the great multiplicity of everything in the world, that there had to be some ultimate cause of it, and they called that the Logos. And in the Christian world, let me finish my sentence. The, the Christian world, the Christian world by, by means of revelation, and Christ actually coming into the world, knew that what the Greeks understood abstractly, as an abstraction, was real. Not, not an abstraction, not a thought, a real a person, a God. That's the Logos. And, it's, and I've been using them you know, off and on in our time together, but I, I'm spending time on it recently, but it's, it's behind everything we're doing. So. so what's your sentence? Sorry? So what's your sentence? I use it in a sentence. Exactly. I, wait, I just use it. I'm not going to replace it. Your sentence was a paragraph like Paul. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't ask for a simple sentence. You asked for a sentence. I gave you a sentence. <laughs> like who, Paul? Oh, yeah. <laughs>
Let me go on. Let me go on. We will keep coming back to this. I'll come back to it again. I promise. I promise. Because I, I hear, I keep, every time I don't answer Bob, I carry him for a while and I have to come back. I'll come back to you. I won't forget you. Um, Epos word. You guys are out of hand. Um, but one of the characteristics of the epic is that it's a word, and remember from the beginning I said, there was the sense from the beginning that by epos, a word, the Greeks also meant a divine word. That's why, I mean, the parallels to the logos are just amazing right from the beginning. That's why when Homer began the Iliad, or Virgil begins the Aeneid, they invoke the gods. And remember, it's sing muse, it's the goddesses that are singing. That's who's speaking. That's who's telling the story. It's coming through Homer, but it's the God speaking. So a divine word is being given to us. It's like a form of revelation. So from the beginning, the epic has always had this, this, um, I have to call it, just this, mag this extraordinary meaning to this word epic and what an epic was doing. It could also mean speech language, you know, things like that, but, but I want to focus on this because of its relevance for what we're doing. A second quality, <clears throat> from the beginning I've said that in the epics um, we're shown that a veil separates us from the gods. If you remember the Iliad, in the um, early scenes of the Iliad, there was that scene when Diomedes is ready to have his Aristide, he's about ready to go into to a battle, and it's described as Athena taking away the veil from his eyes yeah. and he could see the gods. Yeah. He could see them fighting. In the Aeneid, even a better, there's that moment when Aeneas is in the city, hysterical because the Greeks have invaded the city and the veil is taken away by Venus and he sees the gods are destroying the city. It's a profound moment. And we're, we're given to believe, we're, given, we're shown that at certain instances, humans are allowed that sight, just like the prophets. So one of the qualities of the epic itself is that that veil separating the human and the divine is ruptured, ripped, taken away. So that the entire story shows the interaction of the divine order in the human. What's going on in Dante's world? Exactly the same thing, except it's no longer the gods, it's a divine agency entering the world through hell. Be it Mary goes to get Lucia, Lucia goes to get Beatrice, Beatrice, Virgil. Now he's with Beatrice, and where's he going? And we learn, to meet, we learn here, when he meets her, um, um, Dante was damned. She has those words where she said, I, wasn't, I was crying for him, and I sent Virgil to get him because he was lost. And I didn't read that scene tonight, I think I did yeah. last time. So one of the characteristics of the epic is that it removes this veil between us and the divine order. It shows the gods interacting. That's one of the qualities of um, the epic. A third quality. The epic is characterized by a metaphysical extension of time and space. It deepens the imagination of man and forces us to accommodate a larger field of vision. A metaphysical extension of time and space. We enter a much larger world. It's always a cosmic world. What is Dante doing? Down into hell, up purgatory, into the heavens. 
There is not an epic that doesn't leave us with some sense of our place in a cosmic order. How many of us live with that today? I mean, how many people? I, school curriculums don't require um, astronomy anymore. I think it's a sad loss. We don't know the skies. It's not a requirement. The kids get it in third grade and they never see it again. Sad. It's our, it's our universe. <clears throat> Four, the mysterious dynamic of the sexual relationship between man and woman is uncovered and explored. We have seen this from the beginning. Helen, behind the Trojan War, the adultery with her husband. The odd, I said at the beginning, the Iliad is one of the best, one of the most profound critiques of the male honor code, of man himself, that we have in all of literature. The Odyssey is one of the best critiques we have of woman, of all of her disorders. I'm going to come back to this in a minute because I want to get to Beatrice. The epic always reveals something to us of the sexual disorder. Why? Because procreation, our civilization, depends on it. It's at the heart of our world. Um, the dangers we're facing today, to me, are extraordinary. Um, <clears throat> The epic, by, by character, by its very nature, always takes the past with it, carries it forward, and transforms it as it goes. It always carries the past forward. When we read the Odyssey, we've got the Iliad everywhere in it. I'm so grateful that you, I mean, I'm so glad you've all been able to do this. When we read the Aeneid, you all remember, you can't read the Aeneid and not find the Iliad and the Odyssey. In every line, every single, every line, and yet it's all recreated. It's not literally there, but it's there. Christ, the Logos, present. Every, how, how do you explain something that's there and not there at the same time? The Iliad and the Odyssey inform in every line. So the epic has always carried the past forward and changed it. What is Dante doing? Virgil's his guide. He's carrying the past forward, he's making it present to us so that we can carry it forward, and changing it. The epic theme for Dante is a new founding. And we've talked a little bit about what's the new founding? We have an entirely new kind of epic hero. The battle he takes on, the epic, like all epic heroes, have, have battled, right? They've all done battle. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, all, they all have masculine valor. They fight wars. Dante was a soldier, was a young man. The image he gives us of the epic hero is a radical transformation of the epic hero. The most important thing for Dante, following St. Thomas and Aristotle, is learning. It's a spiritual struggle. We're, we're never meant to stop learning. If we ever stop learning, we're dead. I think Marcy's got a few years in me, and she just purchased the Summa Theologica. And I can't say how angry I am her because she's got a new copy, and I've never had a new copy. Um, I charge for you to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> and the Perusia, the last quality. I suggested from the beginning that the epic is always taking us out of the past and bringing us into the present and that in that ways it resembles the Perusia, the second coming. The return of the king has been the dominant theme through every epic. Achilles returns to battle. 
Odysseus returns home. Aeneas returns to his home, even though he didn't know it, he was going back to ancient origins. And he returns as a king and brings unity to Italy. It's the founding of Rome, the eternal city. So in some amazing ways, every one of these epics has intimated Christ, has in some ways had some sense of this king that was going to come. Okay, why, why Beatrice? Why Beatrice? Why, and why a woman? And why not his wife? Because he, because Beatrice was the image of the Trinity for him. He fell in love with her. She died. Yes. He married, but, um, but she was the first image of the Trinity, so it was a religious, mystical experience. Let me, um, I want to, I want to, um, I'm a little bit at sea here because I'm, I'm not even sure that I can answer this well, but I believe it's profound and I think it's something we're supposed to be taking seriously. We've only got about five minutes, so. Um, there are few examples in ancient liter of literature of a woman being given the position that Beatrice is in the Divine Comedy. Um, one of the more important occurs in in Plato's Symposium. In the Symposium, it's a gathering of philosophers and poets to talk about love. And when it comes time for Socrates to give his definition of love, the, defini the definition he gives was given to him by a woman called Diotima. So we never see that in any of the so Socratic dialogues, none of them, none of them. But no woman is given that kind of importance. And we learned from Socrates that Diotimus taught him that love, and I'll give you this definition, it's hers from the symposium, love is a begetting on the beautiful. It's a begetting, being, something being brought to life on the beautiful. Love, love is awakened by beauty. Plato will ultimately call that goodness, but we know that goodness and beauty are the same thing. I hope that's clear to everybody. Look on Christ's face. I mean, I can't imagine anybody imagining that without seeing, that's goodness itself, but can you imagine looking at it without seeing beauty itself far beyond anything we could ever imagine from the beautiful things that we know on earth? What awakens desire is the beauty of things. And Diotomit says that love is begotten on the beautiful, on what's beautiful. One of the, one of the effects, one of the forms that takes is poetry. Poetry is a bring a begetting begotten on the beautiful, that the poet sees a beauty to something, a goodness to something that he has to incarnate, he has to give a form to, whether it's Homer or Virgil or Dante. What is, what's motivated Dante all his life? The beautiful, the goodness, the truth of things, in, particularly in Beatrice and God. Um, Jung talk, talks a little bit about the anima and present in men, and he, I, I, I think he's mistaken, and Freud doesn't, to me doesn't even get close, but Jung talks about the progress of the anima and the, and the masculine soul is moving from Eve to Helen to Mary to Sophia. Um, I think he's mistaken in 
basic ways. Um, he when in, he says that Eve represents that awakening of of woman as a sexual object. I, I, I really I can't tell you how much I disagree with that. I don't think I don't think in their original condition that Adam and Eve looked at each other as sexual objects at all. It's not until after the fall that that happens. Before the fall, they look at each other with intentionality. They see love in another. They feel love in themselves. There's a union without objectifying the other person. There's nothing in nature. There's a oneness. That what happens in nature before the fall is that somehow they behold one another. There's a beholding of being one with. The whole effort of the Catholic marriage is to get us back to a oneness. One flesh, you know, Paul calls it. <clears throat> My definition, um, one definition, at least when I've, as I've thought about this, it's Beatrice in some ways represents a wisdom that Virgil doesn't have for this reason. This is me. This is me from my reading of the ancient world and Dante and others. That wisdom is feminine in this sense. That wisdom is um, a power that the world does not recognize and it's vulnerable to the world. It's vulnerable. It's, it's threatened. What, what the terms in which the world deals with things are force, brute, male force, typically, or, or female force. Um, but it's vulnerable to the world, and so it can't be imaged in any other way except feminine. It, it's always under threat because it represents a view of things that the world doesn't know. That's why in the ancient world, wisdom is Athena. It's the feminine figures. Um, not the, and, and well, I mean, the men, Zeus is wise and everything, but Athena is the image of wisdom, and she's the only figure in the, in the, in the um, Greek um, pantheon. She's the only figure to combine wisdom with power. She's dual, she, and she comes out of Zeus's head. She's not begotten like the other gods. Remember in the Iliad, she, she puts on armor to go into, and she defeats Ares, passion, and Aphrodite, passion. She is a depth of reason beyond the grasp of most, most men. Lots of women don't have it as women. Some men have it as men. So it's not peculiar to a sex. It's not like women have it as, uh, because of their sex. It is a quality that is feminine in nature for that reason. To the extent that women give themselves to the world, I'd say they're at risk of losing it. To the extent that men do, they lose it. I'd say the poets are particularly gifted, but if you read the poets the way I do, you know they're, they're, they're men who tend to stand outside of the world. They stand on a threshold. They're looking at the world in ways other people generally don't see. So the, the wisdom that Beatrice represents is of another kind. Her, her prototypes go back to Athena, and fig, particularly in the epic tradition in which we've been working um, like that. Now, one last thing. Um, if, if we go back to the Odyssey, you remember that the Odyssey is one of the, one of the first serious critiques of women that we have in our literature. When Odysseus goes into the underworld, none of the queens remember their husbands. They remember their flowers, their artifacts, their the things that they did with their houses. They don't remember their husbands, um, none of them. Um, and we, we've seen the, the, that most of the female archetype figures that Odysseus meets on the way, the feminine, are 
violent or potentially violent. Um, the sirens, the, the Lestrigonese woman who has all the violence surrounding her, all the power. Um, Calypso, the word. Remember, she's the one who keeps Odysseus bound for eight years. Calypso means to hide. She and Circe represent something possessive in woman. Something in woman wants to keep a man for herself. That if Odysseus does not learn to deal with those things in a woman, he will not get home to his marriage. So it's one of the most extraordinary critiques about the sexual relationship between men and women we have in our, in our literature. And I suggested then that women take a variety of forms. They are, um, hold on, um, sorry. Oh, I can't remember, but let me, they are temptresses, guides, voracious eaters, and, um, and goals, the end. So women play a variety of roles. I mean, we see a variety of aspects in the feminine revealed in the epic. And one of the important things that we see in the Odyssey that I think point towards the Divine Comedy here is this. Um, and, and they're also promise with Nausicaa. Remember the youthful feminine promise? So um, goal, threat, devour, promise, goal itself, the final goal. Um, Penelope is the epitome of the feminine. She has contained in her all of the feminine disorders mentioned above to disordered men, men whose lusts give women inordinate powers like the siren. When a man wants a woman more than he should, he gives her a power over himself that he will pay for. Um, Penelope is the epitome of the feminine. She contains all of the disorders to disordered men, men whose lusts give women inordinate powers. They are present in conspicuous ways in Clytemnestra and Helen to the suitors as an image of feminine beauty and sexuality. Penelope is an overpowering temptation, an object to be used to gratify their lusts as well as their craving for power. To them, as lawless men, she is death. They're all going to die. To them, as lawless men, she's death. To Odysseus, the virtuous man who's learned restraint, she is beautiful, faithful, pious, modest, wise, clever, respected, and loved. She is a trial to him for 20 years, helper, temptress, goal. She is finally fulfillment at the very end. What does this have to do with Beatrice? I think Beatrice takes all of those things but, but moves them in the dimension, dimension of a divine order because now she, she is, um, what's the word I've been using? She's, she is a Christ bearer. So she has all of those qualities and a severity that Beatrice, or Penelope doesn't even get close to. And one other thing, in place of an end, which Penelope is to Odysseus, she is an intermediate end. She knows that she's there to serve Christ. She is not there for herself. So she has none of the temptations to selfishness that we've seen in the women earlier. She is there to help Dante get to Christ. That's her goal. So she's taking him beyond herself. She is guide. So the woman that's about to, under, to pick up the, the journey of Dante carries all those things that we've been seeing in the woman and now brings something of Christ to them. She is wisdom. She is virtue. She is servant. She's going to help Dante 
realize his end. And remember, this is a new epic hero. This is a kind. It's, it's crucial that he learn everything so that he can bring everything back to us so that we can learn. That's his job. Okay. Sorry. Wish we had time for questions, but I don't want to. Is this okay? Okay. No, this was, she, got it off, she got it off the internet. Yeah, if you want me to make you one? Sure. Because it helps the reading. Yeah, I'll bring you one. Okay, thank you. Or a wish, yeah. Here, well, you got that. Oh, yeah, you can take his. Here, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll,